my point is, is that it's the positioning of Russia as an existential threat to the foundations of, say, the American system and what that implies. And also you when you see Russia deployed as as infectious. And so, you know, I started this the blog in 2005 um, and I kept at it, even though a lot of academics told me that I was wasting my time. You do what what I, I like to call now you try to find the new revolutionary subject, the ever collapsing Russia. Where Russia is always either it's always in motion. It's always headed towards some sort of, you know, um, some sort of cataclysmic endpoint. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, a podcast where I, Kevin Rothrock, talk to movers and shakers in the world of Russia-focused journalism and academia. For today's show, I interviewed Sean Guillory, the scholar behind the popular Sean's Russia blog and the SRB podcast, a weekly podcast on Eurasian politics, history, and culture. Sean is also the digital scholarship curator in the Russian and East European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's an occasional columnist at Jacobin Magazine, where he writes about Russian left-wing politics. After listening to today's show, consider skipping over to Patreon, which is how both Sean and I fund our podcasts. Check the description of this episode for hyperlinks. So what are you going to hear about on today's episode of The Russia Guy? I asked Sean what he makes of American Russophobia today and whether he thinks it's fair when people compare it to the McCarthyism of yesteryear. We talked about how he got his start as a blogger and what he thinks of academia today when it comes to the study of Russia. Also, we discussed U.S. media coverage of Russia and the anti-Kremlin opposition. And Sean explained what he thinks journalists generally get right about the culture and where a lot of the reporting comes up short. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. I think at some point we, and I've been thinking about this, um, the more uh, Facebook denies my ability to pay for advertising <laughs> for my podcast, but now also for an academic series I'm, I, I'm, I organized at Pitt. Um, I think that we who are part of this very large Russian studies community are going to have to some, I think, at some point address the issue of um, Facebook and social media and its effect on our ability to basically do our work. Um, and by that, I mean not only how the social media landscape contributes to forms of self-censorship, self um, contributes to harassment, to the point where very knowledgeable people don't engage publicly because they just don't want to deal with that shit, you know? Um, I think we need to also think about the ways in which Facebook is, uh, you know, it's using its monopoly power to define what issues are acceptable to talk about concerning Russia. Not just Russia, of course, but, you know, in particular for us. Um, and of course, the the overwhelming, very loud voices of people in the public debate about Russia 
um, being really crowded by people who, frankly, don't know what they're talking about. It's kind of ironic, though, because I feel like now maybe you're you're not comfortable with this uh, dichotomy, but my impression is is that kind of people on one side of this argument or will say what you're saying, and they'll say that that uh, Facebook's sort of leading to this crowd mentality, or at least it's 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 crowding out people with uh, with kind of dissident views or with views that that differ from the mainstream and that has consequences for people especially in the russia field um and so you have academics for instance or probably you know you could i I would guess actually i know for a fact journalists who who you know they don't speak up on certain stories they don't express their skepticism or this or that because they know that uh that would kind of not jive with the the you know, mentality of the, mm-hmm. of the moment. But then the other hand, and, and so that, so then the, they, they, they might suggest, uh, suggest or, or, um, or, you know, promote some version of, of, reg- I don't know if you said the word regulation, mm-hmm. but, 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 you know, some kind of control on Facebook because it, it's this power and this force to be reckoned with that's sort of changing and constraining our lives. <clears throat> But then on the other side, you've got people that say Facebook needs to be regulated because it's, you know, destroying democracy. It's it's uh, vulnerable to manipulation and so on. And so, like, it sounds like kind of anybody that's got, got skin in this game wants to do something with Facebook and not just leave it be. <laughs> um, but at the same time, right. I, would, I would imagine that people that have skin in the game are probably not the majority. Most people just want to share cat pictures and they don't really care if, like, yeah. you know this or that group is controlled by this or that group. It's just kind of like, whatever, I come here for memes and I come here for baby pictures mm-hmm. and I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could get, it can get pretty inside baseball, but I, I do think, um, I mean, first off, uh, in the, the, my, um, the fact that Facebook has denied taking advertisement from me on certain episodes of my podcast. Is that key, or, like is it keywords in your th- stuff or what do you think the reason I, is? I don't know because um, even more disturbing, uh, I tried to promote two of the events I organized at Pitt hmm. and they were both denied. And these are academic events, right? right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's the logic Facebook uses, but what's what, what bothers me and like, you know, Facebook can, can deny whatever, ta- it doesn't have to take my advertising, right? It has the right to refuse taking money from anyone. But what bothers me about it is that they are using that denial of advertising to define, and, and this is the reason why they reject these advertisements, at least on my side, and I, I know others have had this experience, is that because I'm not author- authorized to place ads on issues of uh, po- political or issues of national importance. Now, for me, this is, I don't call this censorship. I mean, people will throw this word around. What what it is, I think, is actually worse. And that is, it's murder. using its, it's murder. Monop- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's using its, its monopoly power to decide what are issues of politics and national importance. And as somebody like me who sees my podcast as educative, and and of course the academic um, events that I tried to promote just in the last two weeks are part of a well-established university 
from a research uh, center funded by the Department of Education. You know, I mean, I, I don't I, I don't I, I thoroughly reject Facebook's ability to define what is politics. And I think that's what's most troubling for me. That's, that's interesting. I can, I can only imagine it's it's a keyword thing. The fact that Russia is in the name of your podcast and stuff and, and so on. Perhaps. I mean, the last one, the last two I got denied. Um, so the first one was for an event uh, that I did a live interview with um, a scholar, Matthias Neumann, called Youth Communism and Generation. And that was, try. I tried to do that ad through the uh, Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center Facebook page. So it wasn't through my personal page or the podcast page. And then the second one was for an event that's this week on um, <laughs> the International Children's Home outside of Moscow, <laughs> where uh, lots of foreign dignitaries um, sent their children in the 20th century. And that's for basically an academic talk. So it, it's very weird. I, I don't maybe because it's being promoted by the Center for Russian East European Eurasian Studies. And, and this is why I think you know, there there might be a conversation worth having as to, you know, Facebook and other social media platforms defining and having influence over how scholars, academics, you know, even journalists um, go about dealing with, you know, Russia and post-Soviet space more generally. But ahead of this podcast, ahead of this interview, I wrote on Twitter, I was I told people that I was interviewing you. And I asked people to send in questions that they had. And one of them was sort of in the vein of this this conversation that we're having now. Um, somebody wanted to know if you would compare today's level of Russophobia to McCarthyism. And if you think that it's impacted U.S. foreign policy. So it sounds like it's certainly impacted Facebook's c- corporate policy. <laughs> but but uh, right. I don't know. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Because, you know, McCarthyism is a pretty big thing to throw around but uh yeah first i i would like to define russophobia um at least at least my definition of it and my definition of it is when russia is presented as a civilizational threat like an existential civilizational threat and and just to give you some examples of how this is deployed discursively it's when russia is undermining the foundations of democracy. But I mean, if, if they, you said earlier that you acknowledged that there were influence efforts. Sure. And so, but if the, if the efforts were not, because I mean, some of the, some of the, the interference seems to have been directly aimed at undermining Hillary Clinton, but then there was other stuff that they did that seems more generally aimed at keeping people at home Mm -hmm. by way of sort of disillusioning them with the whole process. Um, which doesn't take a great shove. People are already there. <laughs> I, I think. I mean, sure. I, I certainly sympathize with that that viewpoint. But but um, but my point is is that it's the positioning of Russia yeah. as an existential threat to the foundations of, say, the American system, and what that implies. And also, you when you see Russia deployed as as infectious, and so when a language of infection like Russian corruption is affecting Western you know society. Uh, Russia poses um, this counterpoint of Russia being part of a an authoritarian access axis yeah. versus the you know 
Western values, being a threat to Western liberal values, the liberal international order. I mean, what happens here is that Russia is inflated into, first off, being much more, much stronger than it actually is. Um, and, and by virtue of that, uh, the West, in quotes, um, as more fragile than it is. Now, the Russians would have to do far more than some hacks and Facebook means and Twitter bots to undermine the foundations of the American democratic system. If they're able to do that through those methods, the American democratic system has far more problems than Russian bots. If it's so weak to be shaken and disrupted like that. So when I speak of Russophobia, it's that positioning uh, of Russia as a, as you know, almost as a, a class of a clash of civilizations rhetoric. Um, to go to your question about McCarthyism, first off, I, I don't, I don't know, and I, I'd be hesitant to even make that kind of a comparison um, because McCarthyism was focused on anti-communism. Now, that's not to say that it had certain Russo Russophobic elements for sure, um, but the damage it did to people. I mean, it's just not comparable to right now. I mean, you had people blacklisted. You had people investigated by the government. You had people arrested. You had people who were, you know, hounded by the police. I mean, that isn't happening now. Um, but I think it, it what it has done is it's made it, made it difficult to maneuver politically to deal with Russia uh, as we as it exists. So, for example, I, I don't think any American president um, is going to have any wiggle room to deal with Russia until Putin leaves. Right. Um, and and it's created that re the rhetoric of this binary world, I mean, which frankly doesn't exist. The way I see it is, is that by positioning Russia as this great other that's threatening our, you know, precious bodily fluids, um, you, you, it's a way to reconsolidate, um, what are, you know, what is the West or what are Western values or what is American democracy? It's, it's actually more about us than it is about the Russians. Sure. Um, so I think in that sense, it, it's effects, um, besides the fact that it just produces like some of the most outlandish notions, um, it, it hems us in political, both in our ability to discuss that place, and I think ultimately and unfortunately, I think policy. Um, because if you, I mean, you've seen this in the rhetoric, and I, I think you've probably gotten some of this as well. Um, if you show any kind of effort to approach Russia on some level that isn't, you know, it's evil, then you're pinned as some sort of collaborator. And that's just not a way to do any kind of international relations or even scholarly analysis. What's the most outlandish Russia gate or kind of Russophobic thing you've come across in the last couple of years? I think one, I mean, there's so many, I, I wish I would have, I was more diligent and kind of keeping track of all of this. But one of the ones I, I saw actually, I think it was last week was uh, an article, I think published on the conversation about how the Russians are might disrupt the Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's just completely outlandish. Um, around the election, 
I remember yacht uh, articles about certain Russian oligarchs in quotes, how their yachts are next to people's, you know, from Trump's yachts. And this was some sort of indication of some sort of nefarious, uh, you know, goings on. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, the whole rhetoric of of um, inflating social media as having really strong efficacy over how people go about their lives and how they make political decisions, I think, is just it's 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 out of this world, I think. And um, I mean, I, I, I agree that it, it doesn't appeal to my kind of common sense. But at the same time, this 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 new book out, you know, by. Kathleen Hall Jameson, you know, it's, it's full of statistics and regressions and, and so on, um, by the, it's, you know, it's political science and it's arguing that, right. that, uh, people are influenced by messaging like this. And this is a billion dollar industry or I assume, right. I assume billions, let's say millions, mm-hmm. billions, but it's, you know, advertising, it's, uh, marketing and so on. So like, obviously no one's cracked the code, you know, cause it's not as though you can just plug in what you need from a machine is it's, it's people coming up with ads mm-hmm. doing their best to influence people. But it, yeah, sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I wonder like, um, whether or not kind of like the intuition that I think we share on this is, you know, maybe we're just like working from our own experiences. And, and in fact, social media does have some kind of influence over people. I honestly don't know. I am deeply skeptical, Maybe, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read that the book, so I don't know exactly what kind of, I mean, I've only, my only exposure to it has been the New Yorker article that came out. Right. Um, so I don't know, you know, I can't really comment on the actual, you know, details and arguments of the book. I'm curious to know if, if you, if this resonates with you at all, or if you think it's doesn't, if it kind of misses the mark, but one of the things that, that has occurred to me is that it seems like a lot of the frustration and anxiety over the influence of social media. And this isn't limited to Russian trolls and bots. It's also, I think, has a lot to do with, with um, you know, like the far the far right, Alex Jones, and, and I'm sure it could be extended mm-hmm. to, you know, Bernie bros, or I don't know, somebody on the left. The, all, Occupy Wall Street was, <laughs> wasn't so much of a digital thing, but, you know, I'm sure it had a digital presence, and the, the next thing I'm sure will also have some kind of digital presence. And the issue seems to be, People in academia and people in journalism, people in the media, almost panicking that there are people who are fueled by information that doesn't pass through one of their filters or or through something where they have a kind of barrier to entry um, that they can control. And and, granted, like journalists are professional reporters and scholars are trained intellectuals and so on. So there's a reason that they you know, can lay claim to the power to decide what information gets in and out and interpretations and so on. But it does seem to me like a kind of like people are panicked because it's almost, it's not so much a threat to their employment because I do think that the Russian troll story, for instance, and the whole interference <laughs> scandal has actually been a great boon to journalism. Oh yeah. And, Cause great job creator. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's not so much that to, their sort of professional integrity, at least among mm-hmm. the masses, right? Because, you know, trust in media seems, I, I, again, there's, there must be a, you know, sociological poll out there showing whether or not trust in media is up or down today or tomorrow. But mm-hmm. generally it seems like there is a splintering of what people believe. And that is kind of a blow to the profession of journalists or scholars and so on. People that lay claim to, 
you should listen to me because I'm a professional. What I'm going to tell you is, you know, it's, uh, it's been, it's been, uh, what's the word? What's the thing they didn't do with Palin? Vetted. Vetted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, the, the, you know, I, I think, I think a good, um, historical example of social media is the early modern market square where it's globalized, of course, but it's a place, I mean, think of the, the early modern tavern and the early modern market square and the function it played in, you know, towns in, in Europe. And that is rumors, uh, people, this is how they got their information this is where they they talked to one another. They they did they interacted with strangers. Um, this is a place in which, and this goes to what you just said. This is a place where you get information that's not given to you by the church or the king or the elite. Um, I, I don't I, I don't see this this whole thing about you know truth and the war on facts and stuff. There's nothing historically new about it what is new of course is the reach and the amplification um and and what it says to me is is not only is it a product of you know a technology and the fact that this type of media can be spread very quickly and and anyone with a with a wi-fi connection or internet access can you know say whatever they want to say um but i mean i think we need to be honest here and, and suggest that and that you know the major media cable news has really laid the ground for this type of, you know, news consumption and and discourse in the sense of because of the pressures to get out news so quickly uh, to rely on, you know, government statements and press releases and not really having the time to do proper investigative journalism. I mean, I think in many ways the the social media is more of a reflection of the state of mass media uh, amongst those, you know, knowledge producers than say a counterweight to it, which of course it is in some ways a counterweight to it because people have become, and rightly so. I mean, look, I don't see how a, a station like CNN or Fox, just speaking about the United States, can maintain any truth claim after what happened with the invasion of Iraq. You know, and it's only to me, it's only natural that people would be more skeptical on top of the fact that you have more access to other forms of information. And and in times in which, you know, the times are confusing, rapid change, people's lives feel somewhat unstable. You're being bombarded by more information than you can ever consume. Um, It's not surprising that people are grappling on to simple explanations for how the world works around them. You know, conspiracy theories, um, dark forces, you know, all of the things that say in early modern Europe, people turn to magic to try to understand the world around them. Do you feel compelled at all to turn to magic or some <laughs> modern equivalent? Well, you know, you know, my, my family is from Louisiana, so it's kind of, uh, it's kind of inbred <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> okay. Um, you mentioned uh, knowledge producers, and I was curious. I thought that that would be a good segue. To, I wanted to ask you how you got into this whole knowledge production uh, industry. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure you've 
you've said this at some point in an interview somewhere, but I kind of, I wanted to hear your, your, you tell the story of how you got into academia. And I wanted to know, like, do you, do, are you, are you an academic today? Do you consider yourself an academic? Mm-hmm. Are you kind of a anti-academic? Are you like a, <laughs> a, a, a rebel academic? Like what, what, like, how did you, how did you come not just to Russia, but to, to the study of things and in particular Russia, how did you get there? Well, in terms of Russia, you know, it, it's, it's always a, is a question people ask. And I think the narrative changes as time goes. Um, basically, you know, as a child of uh, the 1980s evil empire, the day after, you know, all of this kind of nuclear fear, um, you know, Russia was always a, a fascinating kind of dark place. And I think that attracts uh, a lot of people just for that. It's kind of a strange. It has a strange history. And then it was really taking an undergraduate course with Arch Getty at the University of Riverside uh, that I became really interested in it. And of course, the other thing that was pulling me towards Russia was just politics, like being interested in left-wing politics. And of course, you know, what what is this communist country, the Soviet Union, and all of that. So that's kind of my entry level into that. And it just went from there. Um, and taking, you know, classes with Arch and then becoming a student of his as a graduate student. Uh, in terms of academia, um, you know, I, I wrote a PhD from UCLA. I was on the academic job market for five years. I didn't get a tenure track position. Um, and luckily, alongside when I started doing my dissertation research, I started this blog and it, you yeah, know, you're one of the original Russia bloggers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, and, and so, you know, I started this, the blog in 2005 um, and I kept at it, even though a lot of academics told me that I was wasting my time. Um, and when I decided to leave academia or just give up, um, I presented a potential, I, I didn't expect the podcast to actually be something that I would do for a living. Um, and, but it's turned out that way. Um, I don't consider myself an academic, uh, because I don't do academic research and I don't publish in academic journals. Uh, in fact, I'm not interested in that anymore. Um, but I do teach and I really enjoy teaching undergrads. And I, of course, you know, engage with a lot of academic materials. Um, I mean, the only thing that might change my own self-perception is I'm, um, I'm seriously considering, and I started doing research uh, to write a book on um, an African-American communist who went to the Soviet Union in the 1920s and is one of the few Americans who died in the Gulag in 1939, a man named uh, uh, Lovett Fort Whiteman. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be, you know, a lot of research and stuff, but it's not going to be an academic book. Um, but yeah, I'm not an enemy of academia. I think... I think academia actually has a lot to contribute. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I do the podcast and in the sense that, you know, you and I both know people who've really dedicated a lot of, you know, time, treasure, some cases blood, you know, going to these places and sitting in a dusty archive or a library and researching something. And to, for me, it's, it's a bit unfortunate that all of this amazing knowledge and really great scholar. I mean, the scholarship right now in Russian history, which is, I'm most familiar with, is just excellent. And, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of this stuff gets produced and nobody has access to it. So what? Nobody has access in what way? In the sense of, you know, academic books are very expensive. 
academic journals, unless you have a university affiliation, you can't get access to them. Um, you may not, you know, most people who are who are civilians, i.e. not in academia, aren't going to read many academic books, even if they knew about them. Um, so for me, the problem is is uh, is about providing access to this knowledge. And, you know, it's I think it's only become more imperative in the last couple of years where Russia has returned to such a, you know, issue in American political discourse that I think academics who know the language, who've spent time in country, uh, really have an important role to play. It's just how do you get that knowledge out there? So how long have you been doing the podcast now? How many years? I started in February 2015. Do you have any favorite episodes? I know that like, you know, you don't want to say that one of your guests you like better than the other, but like, <laughs> are there any, are there like themes that come up in certain episodes, in certain episodes that, that make you kind of think like, oh, that was a good one. Like how, what, what to you makes up a good episode of Sean's Russia blog. Actually, the interview I did with Ron Suni about a month ago is a great example. Uh, Ron was enthusiastic. He's a good speaker. He has interesting things to say. Um, and, and he's funny and entertaining. Um, that was really one of the, you know, for me, uh, it, it it's the, his dynamism is what really made that interview great. Um, because I've had podcasts where I find the topic incredibly interesting, but it either doesn't, you know, it, the, inter, I, the vast majority of people I've interviewed do really, really well. Um, but of course, you know, some people are better than others. Um, there's one podcast I did an interview with uh, Rebecca Mitchell on music in uh, the late imperial period, which was just fantastic. I thought it was fantastic. But again, it's a topic that I don't think had as much like reach that people are interested in. Um, but I mean, she was just as the way she presented her work was just really excellent. Is that frustrating when you do something? I mean, that, does, that applies to more than just your podcast certainly. I mean, you've been you've been a write you you write columns, you write blog posts, you tweet. You know, like they're, 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 I would imagine that frequently you produce something that in your head is like, oh, that captures this thing I wanted to say or this thing people need to hear. <laughs> and then you like you wait for the retweets and the praise to roll in, and there's just crickets. And you know, yeah, that that's that's part of the 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 drug problem of social media mm -hmm. though too. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know that you it's kind of instant gratification. Yeah, um, yeah. That all, I think that's completely natural. Sometimes I think, you don't even get the delayed gratification though. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. It just right. never comes. Uh -huh. Yeah, it just never comes, and you know that happens. I mean, you know, you everybody I think who who writes or or speaks publicly or does anything uh, has these moments where you think something is really great. And, uh, and it, like you said, it's crickets or, and then something you just kind of, you know, shit out your ass just comes, becomes really like takes off for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I have to say, I've actually felt that I've been pretty lucky in some of the stuff that I've written recently. Um, the, the, I'm really, really proud of the obituary I did of Richard Pipes. And I was really happy that, um, a lot of people read that. Um, but you know, yeah, it, it, it depends. A lot of it depends on where you write it. And, you know, if you're lucky that somebody who has a big following notices it. Sure. Sure. Uh, generally speaking, 
what are the what are like the biggest things you think the American media gets right and gets wrong about Russia? I guess maybe let's let's focus on what they get right since we've been talking a lot about what they get wrong, you know, making it an existential threat and so on. Right. What do you, what do you think they generally get right that you're kind of like, you know, you read that and you're like, e, yep, you know, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I admit is frustrating to me because, you know, unless you're, unless you have a column at, you know, the New York times or the Washington post or something, your role as a Russia watcher is generally to push back where you feel that the mainstream gets it wrong, you know, unless you are the mainstream yeah. and maybe, people in the mainstream don't think of themselves that way. Cause it's, that's like thinking of yourself as the villain, but like, right. But you know, you, are there are issues where you're like, ah, they, you know, they get, they get that right. I got nothing more to say on that. Hmm. <laughs> that's an interesting question. Cause I, I see it more, more in terms of individuals that I think get it more or less right mm-hmm. than, you know, kind of broad, uh, dealing with subjects. Like for example, your last guest, Mark Galliotti, um, I think I, you know, I, I don't want to say he gets it right, but I think he he provides in his work an analysis of Russia that is that's that you can work with to understand what's going on there. He has good contacts. He knows the country really well, and he doesn't take this kind of really hysterical positioning on most issues. Right. It's very tempered. So do you think then that there's there's like when you when you think about the American or even the Western consensus on Russia, n- mm-hmm. none of that s- strikes you as plaus- as like acceptable or you do you reject the whole thing. Outright? No, 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 I don't reject it outright because I think that there's really, I, I think a lot of the, um, and, and I've come to realize this over the years to really appreciate the journalists, foreign correspondents that are in country, yeah. um, to really appreciate what they do and the challenges that they face mm in trying to present Russia. I think a lot of the cultural stuff is really good, actually. Like, um, you know, uh, I think it was, who did this? Uh, I think it maybe was it Sean Walker or somebody did one of these, like, traveling around. Fred Weir, for example, just published a series of articles uh, dealing with the, um, with Siberia. Um, I think I think when, when journalists go outside of Moscow, I think that the work, the quality of the work improves considerably. Um, but, you know, I think the problem, and I, I apologize for not directly answering the question, but, mm. <laughs> but so I, I think they get, I, well, I'll try to answer it. I think they get the cultural stuff right. Um, I think when, when Russia is dealt with on its own terms, um, so for example, um, Wow. Hmm. I'm going to insert the Jeopardy music right here. <laughs> you probably should. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the. I'm trying to think of, of. So when you say like cultural or it's dealt with on its own terms, do you mean like when the reporting sort of steps outside Russia's like perpetual overarching confrontation with the outside world and it's just sort of a story about you know ivan going to the funeral home kind of thing like it's that take it's kind of removed from political overt political context i mean i suppose there's always yeah i mean there's that and i think that some of the um some of the work on um foreign policy that is less about what 
we think Russia is doing and more about what they think they're doing is is more valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, you can't find too much of that, I think, in um, in you know, in like the New York Times or stuff like this. But you can find some of it in, say, foreign policy and these other kind of more specialty media outlets. Uh, I, I I find that more productive um, than say trying to always understand the hidden motives of whatever the Russian government is trying to do. What about the the reporting on the anti Kremlin opposition? And I, I, I'm I, I definitely wanted to ask you about this because you you spoke about the Russian left and Russian liberals a lot with your in your interview with Keith Kessin, who. You know, he has he has very strong views about the kind of underrepresentation of the left when it comes to reporting on this issue. And it's particularly kind of pertinent today because like an hour ago, Navalny got another 20 day sentence after, you know, after 30 days. And he was like he walked out of the jail and they, they booked him right away. And so, you know, it's it's pretty easy to see why Navalny and like his entourage get so much media attention. I mean, sure. They also jet, they have a lot of good English speakers on their team and so on. You know, they, they can clearly mobilize a good number of people and they seem to be one of the only groups that's capable of doing that while also not being, you know, um, in the pocket of, of the, the government. Cause that's, that's the criticism that's usually in, to a certain degree, fairly, um, lodged against the communist party, for instance. I mean, the big one, there are other, you know, communist groups, obviously, but leftism is one of the things that brought you to the study of Russia and the Soviet Union. And I'm curious, I, I, I can imagine that you have issues with what I imagine you would call the overrepresentation of kind of the Russian liberal when it comes to talking about opposition to Putin. But like, how, how do you feel about the way it's reported? Like, what would you change do you under, do you sympathize with the way it's it's done, or do you think it's sort of like unfortunate, or it's a plot, you know, by the, the <laughs> capitalist uh, imperialists and so on? Like, how do you how do you, how do you break it down? Uh, it's it's I think it's a convention of reporting, actually, and and you know, journalists who are in country, they have a pretty good re- when you talk to them, and and I, I I'm sure you can relate to this too. When you talk to them, they reveal a much more. Um, you know, nuance and stuff that they do in their articles. And I think that's just because, you know, they're dealing with editors who have to write published stories that appeal to the audience. And the question, of course, is, is, you know, why should an American reader care about the Russian opposition? And one way to kind of make them interested is to pit it as this battle between, you know, Navalny and Putin. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's just a convention of reporting, uh, that when you when you deal with Russian internal politics and you try to present it to an American audience, you you end up placing it in various tropes, right? Um, you you do what what I I like to call now you try to find the new revolutionary subject, right? So in 2011 it was the creative class, and and over the last year or so it's the you know teenagers or young people. Now it's the far easters, far easterners. Yeah. <laughs> or right, is it now they, the fart? Well, because it's like you know, in Vladivostok and Habarovsk, they like just elected the, the oh, communist right. challengers, and so it's I, right. That, that's that seems to be the. I think we're gonna, we're in for a few weeks, if not months, of of like <laughs> speculation about like the 
yeah, the Siberian kind of like revolutionary spirit and the Primorsky right. Partizani and all that stuff. I think oh, right. there's already yes. the, the op-eds are all like swimming in that that kind of speculation now. So I think that's the next revolution, revolutionary subject. But I like the yeah. idea of that being the kind of like motif. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's always the as I, I forget who wrote this article. It was either Paul Sanders or Paul Storobin. I can't remember that he wrote an article a few years ago called "The Ever Collapsing Russia," where Russia is always either it's always in motion, it's always headed towards some sort of you know um, some sort of cataclysmic endpoint. And this is this the argument is that this is indeed happening, or this is the presentation of Russia. This is the this is the presentation of Russia. So like when you see a you know, a Navalny character, it's the way it's framed in the narrative is a narrative of at some point this is leading to the collapse of the Putin system, for example. Um whereas and, and so I understand the narrative conventions. And then the other thing I, I understand is that I mean, look, Navalny is a very charismatic, interesting, brave character. I mean you don't, you know, you don't have to even talk about the what the guy believes in as much as you can kind of figure that out in the first place. I think that's difficult. But as a figure, I mean, he's certainly, you know, one must give him credit for his tenacity. Um, so, you know, I wish the the trouble I have with the reporting on, say, the Russian opposition is that they tend to report on things that you know, in terms of the the struggle, let's say, that really don't concern Russians' everyday lives. But that could be said about, you know, reporting on protest movements in the United States, right? What are the issues you think that affect every everyday Russian lives? I think they're mostly social economic. I mean, you could see that you can see that here with the with the pension reform, right? Which of course is is getting coverage, thank God. But it it also took a while. Um, I think you saw this with uh, the the protests against the trash dumps. You know, I think when you deal with uh, you know local issues, um, and and kind of social, economic, and environmental too, which has a lot of these small struggles going on around the country. Um, you know, these these are things in which I think um, can build a constituency in that country. Um, and, and more importantly, I think giving attention to these small struggles is a way to push back against the idea that Russian society is politically inert or apathetic and that it's only these brave urbanites around Navalny who are the vanguard of any social change and that Russian politics is so ossified that, you know, the the population is essentially in prison, right? It's a, it's a, it goes back to kind of old Soviet understandings of, uh, you know, understandings of Soviet society as basically a prison house of the population that needs to be saved. Um, and I don't think that this type of narrative about people's lives really corresponds to the things that actually, you know, drive them. Um, now, of course, I'm not going to say what exactly what those things are, but I think it's worth investigating. Like, you know, what do average Russians care about? You know, what do they want to see happen for their kids or something like this? Is there, this is something I've, I've been mulling over that I think I might want to ask all of my future guests just because it seems like 
maybe I don't know. You, you can tell me if you're tickled by the question, as a tickle as I am. Um, <laughs> but the the question is, can you name one good thing you think Vladimir Putin's done? Because the you, you never hear about him in that context right. in the West. And I don't mean for this to be like a plug for Vladimir Putin, but like it just seems like an interesting thought experiment almost to have to to, to discuss the the concept of Vladimir Putin doing something right you know commendable and i don't mean necessarily in like a moral sense i'm just right kind of i mean why not put it into like a socioeconomic sense since that's the that's the, those are the terms we were just discussing like the, is is there a policy that stands out to you well i i th- i mean not necessarily policies in particular but i think we need to recognize that uh you know for better or for you know maybe it was not him personally but he was he's been president you know he's presided over um, the development of a Russian middle class. Uh, Russians, on average, live far better today than they have had, you know, really throughout the 20th century. Uh, they have access to more goods. They have access to travel. Uh, you know, the world has has opened up in many respects. Um, and you, like I said, you have the development of a a post-Soviet middle class. That's not to say that there wasn't a middle class before, but I think that um, he's successfully uh, created a Russia that has restored its national sense of itself and and the 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 pride in the country that I think the collapse of the Soviet Union really, you know, put a dent in. Are those two separate things? Or are you saying the middle class is the one with all the pride? I, I think, well, and, and also I have to say, in terms of the middle class... Um, You're not talking about the office plankton or the creative class, it seems. No, I'm talking about the people who, like people I, I, like I lived with in Rezan in 2005, who could buy themselves a new car, buy their daughter an apartment, travel to Thailand or Turkey for vacation, uh, you know, these types of people. Um, and, and I think what it's allowed, it's, it set the foundations for a future Russia that I think might, um, how should I put it, be more stable socially than, than it's, it's restore it's in, in a way, and I don't want to get, um, caught in the nostalgia thing here, but in a way it's creating a class of people that the Soviet system created in the 60s and 70s um, that provided some semblance of the system working for them. Now, one of the problems, of course, is I think now under the Putin system, it's lost any kind of dynamism that it had in the mid-2000s. And, and that's it's become more a political problem than, say, a social economic one. Where can people find you, read you, hear you? Where can they go for that? Basically, you could subscribe to the podcast on your favorite uh, phone app, Android or iTunes, or you can go to SoundCloud, or you can go to seansrussiablog.org and uh, listen to it there. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at seansrussiablog or 
on Facebook. And what about Patreon? Do you have a presence on Patreon? Oh, and I do have a I do have a Patreon site too. Got to get that Patreon. get that money rolling in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> patreoncom slash blog. You can become a patron of the of the podcast. And if you're in the Pittsburgh area, you got do do, do your activities extend to the public or? Oh, absolutely. I'm willing to meet and. You know, as long as you're not a freak. No, but I mean, like you, you said, you were saying people. earlier that you do events. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, oh, like, I do see. Do you take house calls? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, I have been. I mean, I have as part of my my new duties at the Rus- the Russian uh, center is I'm, I'm organizing some events. Um, this semester, I'm doing a, a series on youth and we have some speakers and I'm doing some live interviews and we're showing a couple of films. Webcasts or anything like that or? Uh, no, but all of the, all of the events will be, uh, are being recorded and I'll release them on the podcast. Oh, okay, great. Well, people can look forward yeah. to that. All right. Wonderful. Yeah. That's my interview with Sean Guillory, a noted Russia blogger and podcaster, as well as the digital scholarship curator in the Russian and East European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. In the description of this episode, I'll add hyperlinks to Sean's Twitter feed, his blog and podcast, and his column at Jacobin. Like the SRB podcast, The Russia Guy is made possible by support from listeners like you through Patreon. You can support this podcast at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock. No pledge is too large or too small. Thank you to all the listeners already contributing, and thanks, as always, for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пяки-пуки, как выносит нас земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой ля ля, ой ля ля, погадать на короля. Ой ля ля, ой ля ля, эпа! Завтра дальняя дорога выпадает королю. У него деньжонок много, а я денежки люблю. Ой-ой-ой, ой-ой-ой.